have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. Luke, chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. At the rate we've been going through the book of Luke, we might even be able to finish the whole thing by the time I graduate in two years. I'm glad that uh, other people actually care about science and quantum mechanics because I was an English major in college and everything you were just talking about completely <laughs> right over my head. So, Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we know and we are thankful that when Jesus said at the cross that it is finished, that he answered the evil that is in this world, that he has conquered Satan and his kingdom at the cross. And although we might still see sin and misery in this world, we have an answer to the situation. I pray that through this sermon today, you will speak through me, that you will bring glory through your word, and that ultimately we will be able to see Christ better through it. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. I love scary stories. Whether that is Edgar Allan Poe or H.P. Lovecraft or watching B-list horror movies on TV. I've always enjoyed to be freaked out, to feel uncomfortable, to feel unsettled. It's not really just me that feels this way, because even at Pioneer Club, one of the kids' favorite activities 
is to hide from Slender Man, who is this monster waiting for us behind every single closet, behind every dark hallway, basically every scary place we could find at Faith Church. Looking at our culture as a whole, I think that all of us enjoy to be scared, that there's actually a whole culture in Hollywood of horror movies. But it's because of this background of horror, of even Halloween itself, that we set apart a whole month, that I think we can become desensitized to claims that scripture makes about itself. That we, as Christians who believe what scripture says, we actually believe that there was a talking donkey. That we actually believe that there was a man who was eaten by a fish and lived to tell the tale. That we actually believe in demons and an entity named Satan himself who is not a literary figure but the embodiment of evil. In fact, B.B. Warfield, who was a famous Princeton theologian, once said that scripture, the Bible, is unembarrassingly supernatural. So with that, us being Christians, there are two responses that we can give to that. Is number one, we can have an unhealthy obsession with horror, with the supernatural world, with paranormal activity in general. That There's actually a couple I know of named Ed and Lorraine Warren. And you might have ne never heard of them before, but you've heard of movies that are based off of them, such as the Amityville Horror and The Conjuring. And the thing that sets apart Ed Warren particularly is although he was never ordained in the Catholic Church, he is distinguished by being one of the only men, last time I checked, who was actually had the authority by the Catholic Church to perform exorcisms. And although there's a lot of things about Ed and about Lorraine and the whole couple that calls into question their authenticity and there's a lot of skepticism behind them, there's a because of them, we have created this culture in Hollywood that actually enjoys talking about ghosts, talking about ghouls, talking about the evil realm that we don't see. That we have this unhealthy obsession with it. But then there's also the other side, that we come to these passages in scripture, and when we see these passages, we have indifference, we don't think of it, of what's going on here, or we make excuses of this man was probably had a psychological issue that there's nothing supernatural that we need to be thinking about today. So with those two responses, what are we as Christians to do with these passages? What are we to think about when we see exorcisms? Because there's actually two points I want you to see that this tells us something about Christ, that he is the conquering king Back in Genesis 3, the passage that we just read, God makes a promise to us that he is coming to conquer the kingdom of Satan and that he promises this, this Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent. And that Jesus in coming, he performs these works that are ultimately pointing to his work at the cross of climaxing and conquering the work of Satan himself. But it's not just we see a part of Christ. Because secondly, we also see something about us. And that is that we have to make a decision. 
that there's no sidelining in this cosmic war that God has declared. There's no opting out of the situation that the outcome of this war between God and Satan determines the outcome of our very lives. That the very thrust of this sermon today, the, the whole point of this passage is that Christ as the conquering king has conquered cosmic evil and that makes claims on us right now and throughout our lives. So look back at this passage again. Actually, before we even begin back in this passage, there's a little bit of background because if we've been, we've been walking through the book of Luke very slowly, and if you remember, this is not the first exorcism that we've seen in the book of Luke. Actually, back in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus who has cast out an unclean spirit from a man. In Luke chapter 8, we also see the famous story of Jesus casting out Legion, who is a multitude of demons inside a single man, and that when he cast out Legion, they are sent into this herd of pigs, and they go into the sea, which is representing the abyss, hell itself. In Luke chapter 9, we also see that Jesus gives authority over his disciples and gives them the authority to cast out demons, and they fail to do this. And that Luke chapter 10 is ultimately climaxing and summarizing the disciples' response of they are worshiping Christ of his power that he has over the supernatural world. But if you were to think back at this passage, if you were listening very closely, that all of this is progressing and climaxing in this story today, because this is the last exorcism we see in the book of Luke. It's almost ironic because... It comes across anticlimactic. That reading again, look at the verse. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and that is the whole exorcism. Because the point of the passage today is not the event, not Jesus casting out the demon. It's the responses that are given to Jesus. We see three different responses in this passage. First, we see that when the mute man speaks, the crowd are left in amazement, that they marvel over this. But then two more responses, beginning in verse 15 and 16, we see two objections that are given to Jesus. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But think about the logic of that first objection, that we might pass over it, and we probably don't even know who Beelzebul is, but it's this pagan deity in their minds, but ultimately Jesus, when he answers them, says that they are talking about Satan himself. But more importantly, think about what they are saying, that Jesus is casting out demons by the ruler of demons that this is about as absurd of a claim of if someone were to say, I'm going to overthrow the government funded by the federal government. But it's not just that, because ultimately it's that first objection. And then look at the second objection, that others are looking for Jesus to give another sign. They say, Jesus, show me more. Convince me. I need another magic trick. I need something else for you to prove to me that you are truly doing something here. 
that they are, are left unconvinced, that reality is staring them in the face. They have no excuse for remaining skeptical. And they rather live in absurdity. They rather live in a lie than worship Christ and see him as this conquering Messiah that is destroying this kingdom of darkness, destroying Satan's rule over their hearts. They rather live in this lie. But if you look at the passage, you would see that Jesus doesn't give in to this objection. Jesus doesn't say that, you know what? I know that you think that I am evil incarnate right now. I know that you think that you need to have more proof to for me to show you that I am the Messiah. So let me just do a little bit more. Let me do something else to show to you who I am. Instead, Jesus says that knowing their thoughts, before they, they didn't even say these to Jesus to his face, that he knows exactly what they claimed. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. That essentially, you this is ridiculous for you even to claim the very work that I am doing before your eyes is destroying Satan's kingdom, and you think that I am actually working for him. And actually, continuing on in verse 20, Jesus gives the mission statement of this coming kingdom. In verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus isn't saying that this kingdom will eventually come in your time. Not that it's already come, you're in it right now before I was even here. Jesus is saying to them that if I am doing this work, if I am exercising these demons, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. That that promise back in Genesis 3 of God crushing the head of Satan is being fulfilled in each and every one of these exorcisms that Jesus is performing. That ultimately this work that Christ is performing is pointing towards and moving towards Christ's death and resurrection at the cross where he will climactically crush the head of Satan and this gospel goes forth into all the world. But that's the problem we face today. And that might be why we are skeptical. Because you might be thinking right now that if Christ has conquered Satan, if Christ has conquered cosmic evil through his death and resurrection, why is there still natural disaster? Why do I still see tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes that are killing thousands of people every year? Christ has conquered cosmic evil. If he has conquered Satan himself, why is it that I'm suffering right now? Why is it that my house is being foreclosed on me? Why is it that I got the bad diagnosis from my doctor? Why is it that my spouse is leaving me, my child is rejecting everything that I've taught them and going off on their own? You might even 
find yourself in the objections that these two, pe- these two crowds say to Jesus, that you might think that if Christ has conquered cosmic evil, then why does Christianity bring so much evil into the world? That we can look throughout church history, we can look at throughout history and see racism, we can see bigotry, we see slavery, we see so much hatred that if Christ has done that, if he has conquered Satan, then why does the church not look like that? Why does the church bring evil into this world? If Christ has conquered cosmic evil, why do I still have so many intellectual doubts? Because how do we even know if Jesus of Nazareth existed or if he did this? Because these gospels happened decades after Jesus existed, that there's always another excuse. There's always other evidence that we give or excuses that we want to have towards Jesus and what he has done. But that is our situation today, is that outside of Christ, that him bringing in this kingdom of God through his work and resurrection, that outside of him, outside of being united to what he has done and believing in him, we are actually a part of this kingdom of Satan. That might shock you today because you might not think, I'm not a very evil person. But actually, Jesus himself explains the situation because keep reading. And Jesus explains what's going on. That when a strong man, this is Satan himself, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That he, through these exorcisms, through his death, has conquered the strong man, has conquered Satan himself, and that we have hope of being united to him in his kingdom of heaven. But also, Jesus tells us that there are only two answers we can give to this situation. That whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That you can't opt out of this battle between God and Satan. You can't say, you know what, I don't want to be involved. That you are either for Christ or you are against him. That the very act of the rest of scripture tells us that outside of Christ, we don't even want to be a part of this kingdom of God. We don't want to be a part of what God has promised to do, to answer this evil. That we follow the desires of our own hearts. That we willingly subject ourselves to this kingdom of darkness. That we love to be follow whatever we want. That we willingly sin against God. And because of this, scripture tells us that we are left in this kingdom of darkness apart from Christ doesn't leave us in this hopeless situation because he tells us that we are given the ability to come out of this kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan. That even Paul in Colossians tells us that God has redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. That we have the hope of being united to Christ. And even though we see these evils in the world, that we still live in this fallen world. We're left with the hope that one day our citizenship is not here, 
but united to Christ in heaven. That we live in the kingdom of God today and we are looking towards the kingdom that has not yet climactically been fulfilled through Christ. That we are, Christ makes claims on us today through this war he has committed against Satan. But secondly, it's not just that we must pick a side today. Secondly, it's not just that we have claims made about us today, but now we also see that Christ makes claims on us throughout our lives. Look at verses 24 through 26. And to be honest, I actually called Will two weeks ago about these verses, and I said, Will, do I really need to do these verses? Because <laughs> I remember looking at them and saying, I have no idea what Jesus, is trying to, what Jesus is trying to do. This looks more like some book on demonology or H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon. This doesn't really make any sense to me at all. And then looking more and more at it, I actually didn't know what to do with it until yesterday, which is never a good, good thing when you're preaching the very next day but this is vital to the passage itself, that Christ himself is making claims throughout our lives. Because we actually see two things about demons, the supernatural world, that when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house which I came. <laughs> that number one, demons are parasitic in nature, that they are constantly latching on, looking for rest. That word for waterless places there is actually alluding back to Israel in the Old Testament when they were wandering through the desert, that they had no place to find rest or refuge, that they're constantly looking for shelter and a home to stay. But more importantly, it's not just that we see that demons are parasitic, that ultimately that they are out to destroy this kingdom of Christ, and yet continually fail. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, and it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That the answer we have to these passages, the answer that we have to this war, is that there is no answer apart from Christ. He makes claims on us today but it's more important than just choosing sides. It's more important than, I'm just going to get fire insurance, and I, believe, I think Christ is who I'm siding with. That we need something even more radically done to us. Because if we are trying to answer these problems of evil, that this actually shows us that Christ himself sees the evil in the world, that it continues, and that we are looking for something even greater. But more importantly, Christ is telling us here, that there's something more than us just saying, yeah, Christ, I'm part of your kingdom. That we actually need our minds to be changed here. That we can't answer these problems of evil we see in the world. We so often will turn on the news, whether it's Vox articles or Fox News or MSNBC, wherever you want to find yourself, and we see things happening in the world, and then we tell ourselves, that's bad, I need to do something about it, and nothing ever gets done. But we can talk about evil outside of ourselves, but we don't want to talk about ourselves. That so often we think that we can better ourselves and the things that go on in our own hearts. 
Think of every New Year's resolution you've ever made in your life. It only takes about a week for you to stop doing that, to stop trying to read more, to stop trying to lose weight, to stop trying to exercise. But then how often can we find ourselves doing that for anything else when we sin against God? That if I just try a little harder, then I'll stop doing this. If I just cut it off cold turkey, stop looking at pornography, stop drinking alcohol, stop doing drugs, whatever it is, that we try to do all these things apart from Christ and on our own. And if you've ever faced addiction in your life, you know that the second you mess up, it's not just a little, oh, I kind of slipped up. But you completely fall back into it, and often it is worse than what it used to be. That the claims that Christ is making in these passages, in these last three verses, is not just that we need claims about us today, we need claims throughout our lives. We need our minds to be transformed. We need this redemption that Christ accomplishes at the cross, which has been applied to us through the Holy Spirit. We need to have him in our lives so that we are not trying to do this on our own. We are not trying to face this evil in the world by ourselves. That we have God himself that is renewing our minds day in and day out. That we are to give up everything that we desire and change our desires, our loves, and our passions for what God has for us. Because actually there's this picture in the book Pilgrim's Progress, if you ever read it. I know that Will absolutely loves this book. So I'm getting brownie points right now. But in the opening passage, that the main character, Christian, he's just learned of his sinful nature, of his sinful condition. He's been, this man named Evangelist has told him what's going on, that there is punishment for the, sin, the sinfulness that he lives in, and that Christian says, what must I do to escape this wrath of God? And Evangelist tells him to fly from the wrath to come. And in the opening verses, or the opening passages of this book, we see Christian running out of his town, forsaking everything he's ever held dear. And the only words coming out of his mouth is life, life, eternal life. And the whole town is chasing after him and saying, Christian, you're leaving your family. Christian, you're leaving your job. Christian, you're leaving everything you've ever had. And Christian is inviting them to come out with them, to come with them, because he knows that there is no keeping one foot in this world and keeping one foot with Christ, that the only answer to being redeemed is to give your whole life over to Christ. And that ultimately is the situation, the answer that we have today, is that Christ doesn't just ask us today, whose side are we on? He's not asking for us to have an answer to this situation. That he knows that there's something so much deeper that we need. We actually need our desires to be changed. So that we're not wanting to be a part of this kingdom of darkness. So that we're not wanting to follow our own desires and our own passions and lust and whatever it is that is in our hearts. That we need our minds to be renovated to come after Christ. Because we actually have more than just a hope of joining Christ in this kingdom. We actually 
have a promise today. Is that promise that Christ said when he is crushing the head of Satan, that as I've said, this is not completely fulfilled. We live in the reality that the gospel is given to us today. But we actually have future redemption we are looking forward to of joining God himself. And that at the end of the book of Romans, in chapter 16, verse 20, I just saw this as we were sitting in passage, and I needed to get to this to end here. Is that this is the promise Paul tells us of the future reality of this kingdom of God. Is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 